We are going to open up uh, to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, as you're doing that, I want to give us a, a quick review. We've been for two weeks in this mini-series called Warfare in the Heavens. Warfare in the Heavens, the reality of this contested space that we live in and that we seek to follow Jesus in. Three uh, elements of our preamble as we explore this. The first one is Jesus taught that God's kingdom was not invading Caesar's kingdom of Rome, but the spiritual kingdom of Satan. Jesus himself spoke of the reality of Satan and the realm of the evil one and evil spirits more than most other people in all of Scripture, if not the most. And he confronted the works of of the devil. And scripture actually says that in one way the gospel was God destroying the works of the devil. And so if we want to follow Jesus seriously, and most of us are here because we have that hunger, we need to take the reality of Satan and demons seriously. Secondly, it's a mark of maturity to become aware of spiritual warfare in your life, not immaturity. One of the quickest responses that I could see in someone's face as they start to realize that uh, there's the work of the evil one going on in their life is this feeling of shame. Oh my gosh, how bad of a Christian must I be? How poorly must I be following Jesus if evil spirits are affecting my life? The scriptures paint the picture that ignorance to the enemy's schemes is real immaturity. Being naive to what he wants to do is true spiritual immaturity because then he can do with us whatever he wants. And we think that it's a noble cause or that it's something else. It's maturity to become aware of spiritual warfare going on in our life. All of us, by the way, have it going on in our life in some way, shape, or form in varying degrees of intensity. Third, yet, in spite of all of that, we don't fear Satan or evil spirits. They've been defeated by Jesus we fear sin. We don't fear Satan. We fear sin because sin is our participation into the realm of darkness. It's us actually surrendering some of our own freedom to the enemy that Jesus purchased uh, to redeem us from. And so, with those three things in mind, Jesus taught on Satan, it's mature to be aware of spiritual warfare, and we don't fear Satan, we fear sin. Um, we're going to dive into Scripture this morning. Would you stand with me? And we're going to read one verse. I'm going to read the previous two over us. Ephesians 6. I am going to read 6, verse 10 and 11. And then if we could do something a little bit different today, since there's only one verse, we're all going to read verse 12 together. You have it printed out in your handout, uh, your weekly um, if you have a Bible, you can read along with us there. I'm going to be reading out of the CSB. It's also what's printed in your handouts. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Now let's all read together. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Would someone pray for us, for the Spirit's help? God. 
got plenty of time to wait. Come on, we're a family. It's not a presentation. Thank you, David. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. It struck me as we were reading the liturgical prayer, the prayer of confession, and I hadn't planned this. Uh, There are a lot of moving parts that go into the planning and the future kind of weeks, but we decided on this prayer several weeks ago, and I don't know if you noticed, but it struck me the last line so we confess our sins and all this, then the last line is, free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think there's a ton of wisdom that is being put forward in that simple line of a prayer that's been written down and recited for decades Because I think all of us realize that in our struggle to follow Jesus, in our embodiment and in our place in a city in 21st century Los Angeles, that it is very, very difficult. We feel as though we fail every day. We feel as though we don't know what God's will might be for us in a particular moment. We feel in a very real way like there are ways that it is that, that we're not free to follow Jesus. And we see in this single verse that we read that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against invisible spiritual forces of evil. There's a reason it is so hard. It's not just you and your weakness, though that's a part of it. We can own that. It's not just the weaknesses of us as a collective people with our blind spots. It's the reality that we follow Jesus in contested space. That he put the the final victory was secured last Sunday, not literally, but as we remembered it on Resurrection Sunday, he is risen. It's true. But The kingdom that was inaugurated in the coming of Jesus has not been fully realized yet. We're waiting for that day. And remember what God is like? There's this really uncomfortable truth that we talked about a couple weeks ago when we were going through the kind of overview of the spiritual realm as the scriptures paint it. God's the kind of person that finds more joy, more pleasure, more happiness and glory in ruling in his sovereignty through human and spiritual agents. That God is not some master chess player just forcing moves here and there as though he is the the first source of every single thing, but that he actually desires that we would participate as his daughters and sons in the advance of his kingdom. 
And so in between the resurrection and it is finished, and the I'm the Alpha and Omega, it's here, God's dwelling is with His people, and new creation is here, new heavens, new earth, He's actually maturing you and me that we could be co-laborers in the midst of the battle between light and darkness. And so we wrestle. So if it feels like wrestling, if this last week, if this morning, even getting here this morning, felt like wrestling, uh, you are experiencing something that God is not aloof to, he's not disappointed in you in, that he wants to encourage and carry you through and mature you in the midst of. But it needs to be stated very clearly because it's, it's the main point in this verse. We do not wrestle against people. People out there, or even in a way, if I can put it, ourselves. You are not the mortal wound to God's will in your life. Others out there are not the greatest problem in your life. Blaming others or even ourselves as the ultimate cause of our greatest problems takes our attention off the real and truest enemy and cuts us off from the real victory that's already ours in Jesus. This needs to be stated very clearly. Evil is not sourced primarily in human beings. So much is going wrong actively in the church and in politics right now because we believe that evil is sourced primarily in other human beings. Think about how we demonize. We vilify particular people. That's not to say that people don't participate in very real ways that they will be held accountable for in evil. But we can't modify people and root out evil in our world. Remember, the kingdom of God is here to defeat the kingdom of Satan. And just as the kingdom of God is sweeping you and I into the ways of God, so too the kingdom of darkness is sweeping up people into its ways. I mean, think about this. Where, where do we see, this is like participatory, where do we see other people blamed for ultimate evil problems? Just thoughts, ideas. Where do we see uh, scapegoats? Yeah, okay, there's a deep one. There's the whole point of the Holocaust, right? All of the hatred, all of the vilifying was placed on a particular ethnic and religious people group in the Jews, right? Yep. What else? Yeah, presidencies. Politics, more broadly. Um, see this all the time. You can't be on social media or flip on cable news and not hear, uh, even in the slanting of reporting of facts, the way that some people group is the ultimate cause of something. And if we just deal with them or remove them, presumably the problem would go away. Other. Economic stuff, right? Policies, spending habits, all of these things. We create scapegoats that can take away all of the problems. And the scapegoating leads to the dogpiling of the moral, you know, uh, policing that we have. You ever been on Twitter? 
My goodness. Yeah, um, we see this all the time, that people become the ultimate source of evil, but uh, prescient person volunteering the Holocaust. I was in 2016 at the National Holocaust Museum, and the thing that I took away that was the most shocking to me, because I've been exposed and taught through uh, a lot of what had happened in the Holocaust is this visceral experience of seeing it happen. The thing that I did not know, that I was not aware of, that was the most eye-opening, jaw-dropping, uh, angering, all of those things, was reading that when the Nazis would take over another nation, they spread out their forces, the Nazi German forces, so far that they actually needed those nations to participate in their oppression towards the Jewish people. And so Poland, other nations sweeping eastward into Europe and Russia actually became the agents for the Nazi regime to do just as they had been doing. And I thought to myself, wait, you were just conquered by this source of such clear evil. What in the world could possess you to then become chief participants? for that war. From the Holocaust Museum website, they try and describe some of the motives of these other nations and peoples. The motives of non-Germans who participated in the persecution and murder of Jews in Nazi-ruled Eastern Europe varied. Nazi propaganda reinforced long-standing local anti-Semitic prejudices. Ideologically driven individuals were free to act within the climate of licensed violence against Jews. Tens of thousands of men joined auxiliary police forces or militias. Among their motivations for joining were the need for employment, income, food, the opportunity for gain, including self-enrichment from looting property. Some men aimed to prove loyalty to new German masters. Others sought the opportunity to avenge the suffering of their families under Soviet rulers to settle other scores. Others still hoped that the Germans would reward them by allowing them to establish independent, ethnically homogenous states. Suggest a whole lot of reasons for motivation in their propaganda, prejudices, the need for employment or provision, opportunity for gain, alignment with power, hope for autonomy. There are a lot of surface level motivations. But I wonder what the Apostle Paul would say. He would say, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. You see, according to Jesus and the authors of Scripture, evil in the world is like a virus that attaches not to our biology, but to the moral interworking of our mind, our heart, and our relationships. It spreads by presenting a threat to us, the threat of death in its various forms, and proposes a solution that appeals to our flesh, that kind of autonomous us with our human resources that is opposed to the power and cut off from God. The scriptures present us with a different, more complex reality. When evil goes viral in whole cultures, nations, or churches, they're engulfed by the flames of darkness, and there's another reality at play. Viral evil is propagated by spiritual realities in Satan and demons, and it's predominantly 
a problem of the mind, a way of thinking and believing. It's a problem about our imagination captured by lies. Lies about reality, lies about us, lies about God, lies about others. It might surprise you, but it's what Scripture tells us, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that Satan is the father of what? Lies. Now, most of us have an anthropology or an understanding of what it means to be a human that's been given to us by the last couple hundred years since the Enlightenment that says, you know, I am, uh, I think, therefore I am, but then I kind of just live by all of my desires and expressive individualism. And what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. And we kind of coexist by affirming whatever arises from within ourselves. But actually, beneath all of those things come fundamental presuppositions about what is real and true and good and beautiful. And Satan's chief tactic, if you remember, well, his chief goal is the spreading of death. And his chief tactic is what? Speaking lies. When lies become codified within us, we get what Scripture calls a stronghold. A stronghold, just think back to the times when Scriptures were being written. You had fortifications. You had these towers and and armaments that were built up around cities or key places. And a stronghold was a place that seemed impenetrable. It seemed like there was no way to defeat that place. So, when our imagination is captured by lies, we become bound by what Scripture calls a stronghold. And the reason imagination is helpful language for us rather than belief is because what does our imagination do? Our imagination sees what is unseen. The Lord is unseen by us right now. First Peter says, though you do not now see Him, you love Him. God knows that we don't see Him. Our imagination also projects into the future. And whether or not you're projecting with the hope of the kingdom or the despair of the enemy in darkness has a great deal to do with how you are free or bound to live now. And so a primary tactic of Satan is to capture our imagination with lies about who we are about who God is, about others around us, about our future, about our past, so that we would be cut off from the power source of the promises and presence of God. So, Jesus, though, came specifically to destroy strongholds in Luke 4. 17 through 21, Jesus was in a synagogue, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, verse 17 says, was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, 
and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there is a very real sense in which Jesus came for real physical captives to proclaim freedom and liberation to them. But there's also a spiritual reality that Jesus came to free those who had been held in bondage by Satan. That's what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 say. Now, since the children, that is, all of God's children, share, have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these in his incarnation, so that through death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. You hear that? That Satan is presented as this one who holds people in slavery, specifically there, in the fear of death. Now, don't think about only physical death in our bodies, but think about the reign of the terror of death. Think about all of your fears and anxieties. Think about despair. Think about the kind of crippling thoughts or the broken relationships, the alienation that we experience. All of those flow from the reality of death among us. And Satan uses those things to capture us with fear, to inflate us with pride that we're the ones then that need to do the defeating of the effects of death in our own life, and we're in shackles. Jesus came to show the power of God, not in conquering the world with an army, but in actually surrendering to the one who had the power of death, in laying down his life, in sinking lower, so that anyone would know death is not the ultimate villain that has victory. God is more powerful even than the things that we're afraid of, to free us from those things to expose the lies of those things. And Jesus went to the grave experiencing all of the injustice and evil and worst nightmare-isms of our human existence, and God raised him to life in victory so that we would know even the scary, terrifying elements of your life and my life don't have the ultimate say over us both because they're not the ultimate truth, and we have one with us in real presence here and now who is stronger than them. So we need not live in fear, and we ought not live in pride. But we need to address the areas where we have given ourselves, uh, or rather given lies, too much of a foothold or a stronghold in our life. So, we're going to briefly try and unpack this idea of a stronghold. Um, stronghold is a habitual pattern of thought that has been built into one's life and is contradictory to the truth of the kingdom of God. I'm going to read that again. A stronghold, you could, we could call this whatever we want. There's nothing powerful or particular about this word. There is a place in Scripture that we're going to look at a little bit later that speaks specifically to this. Um, a stronghold is a habitual pattern of thought that has been built into one's life 
So we don't just think it, we start to architect our life around it and is contradictory to the kingdom of God. Um, as a pastor and being in ministry for the last 15 years, I've had the honor of sitting down with other Jesus followers, other people, um, and I've got to hear some of the most like, private, intimate fears, wrestlings that people, that even some of you have. Most frequently, someone from our church, but even people find out that I'm a pastor out in the world and sit down and we have coffee and they, they open up. And one of the most common things that I hear is what I, would, what I would call a stronghold with biblical language. It's a, I know, if they're a Christian, I know that God's word says this, but what feels real to me is this. Therefore, I cannot believe and live in light of the promise. And what's kind of the crux in the middle there is, is God's word really true? And maybe to a lesser degree, is God's word true for me in this life or is it just for the life to come? Because I believe it's true for the life to come most of the time, but I really doubt whether it's true here and now. And so I wonder what that might be for you here. Where is the area of doubt? Not that doubt is wrong in and of itself. Doubt is actually us wrestling through believing in our own story and narrative and experiences. And so doubt is not sinful inherently. But when we refuse to believe God, we're in essence saying he's not a truth teller. He's a liar. And we need to be honest. God wants honesty from us. Honest wrestling in our doubts is a godly, good, mature thing. You will not have less doubts the longer you live. You'll just have different ones. We see it in the Psalms over and over again. We hear it in Jesus wrestling through any other way that this can happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. What is it for you? Maybe it's believing uh, I will never be free from this, whatever X sin is in my life. number of young men and women that I've sat down with and say, I will, I've just surrendered to the idea that I will never be free from lust or pornography. It's always, it might be, come out in this language, I know it's always going to be a struggle. Um, that used to be me. I shared a little bit last week, but addiction to pornography for six years that was filling this void of intimacy that I longed to know and be known and approved by others and experience and closeness and intimacy, um, I stand before you as one who has experienced freedom in Jesus Christ. And it's grace. It's freedom. It's his power, not mine. But we need to expose the lie for what it is that would say, yeah, I know this is sinful, but I guess I'm just stuck in bondage forever. That's not what Jesus died for. There will, caveat, assuredly be things that God is very comfortable allowing for us to live our entire life with, but not most things. And so, maybe for you, it's, it's a sin that you're wrestling with, an idol that you have such a hard time not following. Another one has to do with community. Um... The stronghold that says, God doesn't love me 
because the people around me don't love me. I don't feel loved by the church. I don't feel like I matter to the people around me. Therefore, I am not loved. It's one of the most common things that I hear people who have been in community. You get into community like, this is amazing. Wow. I don't get this out with like coworker friends. Like we actually care about each other in a way that's like honest and vulnerable. And I see and know people and we're committed to one another. I even saw someone drive someone else to LAX the other day. It was incredible. And then comes reality which is that you get close enough to other sinful people and you will be sinned against. It will hurt. It will be painful. They might not even apologize or own it fully. And then we're left reconciling this reality that Jesus says, um, love one another as I have loved you. The world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Well, clearly either these people are not that plugged into Jesus and I need to find a new these people or God's just not going to fulfill his promises so I could say to hell with the church. So there are a variety of solutions, but at the end of the day, it comes down to this, this pain that God could not possibly allow me to endure if either he is good and loving or my community loves me. It's a stronghold. Because pain and disappointment is a part of the contested space we live in. In fact, the gospel and us living out the gospel requires that there be things that we forgive others of. So you're not excused from being unloving toward one another, but we need to be sober-minded about others and ourselves. You think that there are other people that feel that way about you and your treatment of them, right? We start to pull back the layers of this and we start to see, oh yeah, duh. But then we get into the pain of it, the feeling, and it's hard. We want to define reality by our experience. And your experience can be real. Sometimes it's amplified out of proportion, but nonetheless, it's real. And we need to learn that God's promises and his truth will win out and are strong enough to uphold us. So, how do we address these strongholds around us? 2 Corinthians, the same author who wrote Ephesians, wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. So there, the Apostle Paul helps us to see what is, what's going on at the deepest levels that we can address. That ministry and growth as followers of Jesus entails our whole being. But when we peel back the layers, we start to get down into the deep inner workings of our hearts, our belief structure, our will, and our thoughts. And he says that that's where strongholds occur, but that we destroy strongholds with the truth of God. 
So when someone hurts you in this church, the thought will come up, I am not loved here. And hey, that person might not love you. They might be a hateful person, a hateful Christian. Can we wrap our minds around the fact that someone can belong to Jesus and have a lot of hate in their heart? Uh, okay, full transparency. Yesterday, I hated someone. You want to hear the story? I was parked, took my older son. He just went to the bathroom. Uh, I took my older son to uh, Blick Art Materials, and so we're getting his trifold science project board, and we get that, we walk out, and I'm, I parallel park because I found a free spot that wasn't metered just down in the neighborhood, and so that's always a win. We're going back to the car, and I see a van parked, like a big white van parked, like double parked. You know how it's like parked in the middle of the road? And no flashers on, no nothing. It's completely blocking in our car. I'm like, excuse me? I can't go home. What the heck? And so buckle the kids up, and we're sitting there. And I'm like trying to see if maybe there's like some light for me to be able to get out. And there's just no way. I'm getting out. And we're sitting there for five minutes. It probably was more like three, but it felt like five. <laughs> And then I see the, the lights flash on the car and like the booper, the guy was unlocking it. I get out and I'm like, hey, bro, you blocked us in. He goes, excuse me? I go, you were blocking us in, man. Like, don't park there. Excuse me? <laughs> to the point where I could tell it's not that he didn't hear me, it's that he doesn't care what I'm saying. He's like, I'm a delivery guy, making a delivery. I was just like outraged that someone would have such little concern for me and what I wanted to do. And that opposition, that, that how dare you-ness, is a seed planted called hate. I mean, what else would you call it? I want to change what you are doing by force. That leads, I mean, in some places or times in us, you cultivate that seed long enough, it leads to violence, outrage, Murder, Jesus said, anger, right? The root is anger, this real thing that's like, man, why would you do that to me? But when we let anger turn into hate through unforgiveness, we then are in the kingdom of darkness. And so I had to go through the whole like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry for those thoughts that just came up. Like, I forgive unnamed delivery driver who didn't just block us in, but who's like totally disrespectful and didn't care. But the spirit had to like illuminate my eyes to see I was just like pissed off at him, not just like I felt wronged anymore. Do you see? Maybe that wasn't very convincing. <laughs> um, so what we need to do is peel back these layers to get down into our hearts so that we would see what's underneath our feelings, what our feelings preach to us, and what we subtly start to believe lest it become something that contains us, controls us from believing what God says in his word. Jesus came to set us free from strongholds to slavery, of slavery to Satan. Jesus unapologetically tied real freedom to believing the truth and and. We live in a moment where truth is like 10 notches down our like value structure of what's important. Can we just like be honest about that? Like what's true? That's not the thing that matters all that much 
to us in like public discourse and in culture because it's relativized. But if we follow Jesus, the one who is true, and the one who speaks truth to us, we need truth to come back up into priority. Now, we need truth with the nuance subservient to love. That's where it goes wrong. But Jesus himself said in John 8, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's truth that sets us free from strongholds. That's why we have community, because it's not easy. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying this is painful, visceral. Sometimes we hate what God says, and we just want to go against what he says, and that's just the real us, but we need to be so embedded in community with one another that we can do that honest, authentic wrestling together and have people who have the unshakableness to say, yeah, I know. Ugh. But not let us cave to believing lies and being stuck in bondage. Don't we want that? We want freedom. That's, that's where joy is. That's where peace, that's where God himself is. So, some of you are not yet a follower of Jesus. And the appeal, the invitation to you is to see that Jesus is the one who brings real freedom. You can swap out anything in this world, a new set of friends, a new job, more money, more pleasure, whatever it could be, and you won't find what you really long for. Trading the hope of one source to another in the world can't actually deliver us. Only Jesus and the path of following him can make us as fully human as we long to be, as hardwired to be in us, desiring it, and to believe that it's possible. So look to the cross and the empty tomb that we celebrated last week in Holy Week to see the lengths of the love that God has for you and to know he's telling you the truth. See the wounds of Jesus laying his life down for you, surrendering to your greatest fear in death, and to know that there's hope through it. And hear the invitation of God's Spirit, who is here, who dwells among his people, to give you the courage to do something crazy, to actually trust the invisible Lord Jesus who's here, and to follow him. And for the Christian, the follower of Jesus who is here, all strongholds, you need to see this, are locked from the inside if you're a follower of Jesus. In Pilgrim's Progress, it's the most read and published printed book in the world outside of Scripture throughout the last 600 years. It's an allegory about the Christian life written by John Bunyan. It's this allegory about a young man named Christian. It's just very on the nose. And he finds all of these friends, and he picks up one who's called Hopeful. And as they're following on the way to the celestial city through the narrow gate, he tries to take a shortcut. And he ends up in Doubting Castle under the tyranny of the giant called Despair. It says, as they traveled, they slept one night on the grounds of the castle, but it turned out that this was Doubting Castle, owned by Giant Despair. When the giant found them, he threw them into his dark and nasty dungeon, and they suffered terribly from capture on Wednesday until escape on Sunday. 
goes on to describe him beating them and them thinking. Uh, on Saturday, angered, the giant even said <coughs> that had they not committed suicide, he would kill them on Sunday. At midnight on Saturday, despite their wounds then, Christian and Hopeful began to pray, and they continued in prayer throughout the night. Then we read of the amaz their amazing escape. Now, a little bit before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in passionate speech. What a fool! Am I lying in a stinking dungeon? I'm doing like on-the-fly Old English translation because I don't, do not want to try and explain what these could possibly mean reading them out loud. When I could walk at liberty, I have the key around my neck called promise. This was given to him previously in the story. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Using the key, Christian and Hopeful escaped. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have what you need to unlock the strongholds that entangle us. And like Christian and Hopeful, the promises of God prove sure over and over and over again. And it doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean it's, it's not like wrestling, but it's wrestling not against flesh and blood. It's wrestling against the lies of the enemy. Two simple steps in this process of wrestling. A lot more that could be said. First, we will know the truth as we rethink the truth into our life. Repentance is this word in the New Testament that is akin to like a rethinking. New possibilities are at hand, Jesus said, in the kingdom of God. So rethink your whole life. It's as if, if God is with me, then slavery and bondage to death and fear and living in response to that is no longer the only option. It's as though our imaginations themselves are unlocked with the possibilities of life with God. But we need to slow down long enough to not live compulsively, hurried, busy, and unthinking. I mean, I try and sit down and think for 10 seconds, and the flood of cares and concerns and thoughts and pain and all the stuff comes. But we need to simply live at a pace that allows us to live thinkingly, reflectively, to take our problems and our pain and our longings with brothers and sisters and say, this is what I'm wrestling with right now, and I don't see a way out. Can you help me? Christian went from the dungeon of despair to hope as he rethought their circumstances in the midst of prayer. Remember the key of promise. So we rethink the truth into our life. The second one is having the courage to live or act in light of the truth. Sometimes we live into the kingdom by doing something that feels radical to the status quo of our life. Like, you want to be free from anxiety? Guess what Jesus says? Give your money away. Literally says that. Matthew 6. You can go read it. Says you're, you're anxious about provision, about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat. The Gentiles know that have those desires. Your father cares for you. Says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about how terrifying that would be, though. 
Oh yeah, you're afraid about money? Actually, in the kingdom of God, giving it away frees you to see that your real riches are with your Father in heaven who freely provides for you out of abundance. But if you just try and believe it hard enough without the courage to live in light of it, guess what you will not do? Experience freedom. We need the courage to follow Jesus really, not just say, I'm not a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, theoretically. So, we rethink, and then we act in faith. And we know that as we stumble and make mistakes, that's what the church is for. We have your back. We have one another. What is mine is yours. Do not fear death. Jesus has defeated it. So let's live in open transparency together, honesty about our doubts, so that we can be free from the strongholds that would keep us constrained and ineffective for God's kingdom. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, says... Um, if you haven't read it, it's a correspondence between two demons. There's a chief demon writing to uh, his nephew, who's a demon assigned to follow around a couple of people, and they're kind of his projects to try and keep them in darkness and away from the enemy, which is God. He says this, Do not be deceived, nephew Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will, looks round upon the universe from which every trace of him, the enemy, God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Maturing in Jesus is not being so naive as to follow Jesus blindly, but to be so childlike that we trust God's promises even when everything around us speaks a contradictory lie. And here C.S. Lewis says that the cause of the enemy, spiritual warfare, the wrestling that's not against flesh and blood, is most in our hands when we wrestle, we ask why we have been forsaken, and yet we still obey.